Business Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, we're seeing an accelerated response to the Zika pandemic. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention has deployed teams of investigators to northeastern Brazil, the epicenter of the outbreak of the mosquito-borne virus. Well, that's right, Mark. And they're really trying to determine if it is the Zika virus, could it possibly be other additional causal agents that have led to the spike in babies born with microcephaly, smaller heads and underdeveloped brains. Teams are going door to door in the hardest hit regions, interviewing women who've been exposed to Zika during their pregnancy. The data needs to be collected methodically so public health officials can be armed with the best intelligence on the outbreak and the risk assessment. Well, this is really what we call basic classic epidemiology, Mark, Mm -hmm. and it's got to be done. Public health officials have been warning pregnant women to avoid the hardest hit Latin American countries until we know how best to protect them and their unborn children. Uh, But understanding the nature of these disease outbreaks and the specific outbreak is something that our guest today is quite expert on. Dr. Anthony Fauci is the director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He led the global effort to uncover the cause of the AIDS epidemic, and his research has led the way to the modern treatment now helping to control the outbreak. His department is working in concert with the CDC and the World Health Organization to get a handle on the Zika virus, which still has so many unknowns. Well, we don't often focus on a single disease or health issue like this, Mark, but this time we think it's very indicate, mm-hmm. very appropriate, and we're looking forward to that conversation. And Lori Robertson will also check in. She's the managing editor of factcheck.org and is always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love hearing from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. Anthony Fauci in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The World Health Organization has issued several new guidelines associated with the ongoing Zika virus pandemic affecting a large swath of South and Central America, Mexico, and the Caribbean. Evidence is mounting between the link between Zika infection in pregnant women and babies born with severe birth defects, including but not limited to microcephaly, abnormally small head and brain development. The warning has been elevated to women who are pregnant or trying to be to avoid travel to these areas. And for anyone who has traveled to the affected region, being advised to avoid donating blood for at least 28 days upon return. Incidents of a neurological disorder, Guillain-Barre disease, also being linked to Zika exposure. Meanwhile, birth control is essentially unavailable to women in many of these largely Catholic Latin American countries. During a visit to Mexico last week, the Pope suggested in times like these, the church would allow dispensation for women of childbearing age living in areas affected by the Zika virus to use birth control. Combating the outbreak is a global enterprise. World Bank dedicating $150 million to the effort to combat the spread of the disease and work towards a vaccine. Zika is expected to exact a $4 billion economic toll. The federal government and the insurance industry released on Tuesday an initial set of measures of physician performance that they hope will reduce the glut of conflicting metrics doctors must now report. The measures are intended to make it easier for Medicare, patients, insurers, and employers to assess quality and determine pay. 
America's Health Insurance Plans, or AHIP, which represents most insurers, said it was encouraging insurers to add these into contracts it strikes and renews with doctors and hospitals. Medicare already uses some of the measures in its payment programs and plans to add the others. Sometimes doctors have to report multiple measures assessing the same thing, such as how many patients' diabetes improved because each insurer has its own metric. A RAND report has borne out what has long been known the military's health program falls far short of properly addressing behavioral health issues affecting active service members, especially post-traumatic stress disorder and depression, the two most common mental health issues faced by soldiers. A vast majority of soldiers who get diagnosed with PTSD or depression receive at least one talk therapy session, according to the study. In that regard, it outperforms civilian health services. But the system faces difficulties ensuring the patients continue with treatment, either by continuing to see a psychotherapist or following up with a doctor after being prescribed medication. The largest study of its kind, the RAND study, examined medical records for close to 40,000 soldiers diagnosed with one or two of the conditions. Of those, about 15,000 had PTSD, 30,000 had depression, and 6,000 had both. About one in three patients newly diagnosed with PTSD got the appropriate follow-up care after starting treatment. For soldiers with depression, less than a quarter of them completed those four visits. Meanwhile, only 40% of patients who were prescribed medication followed up with their doctor afterward. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease at the National Institute of Health, which oversees research on a broad spectrum of infectious diseases. Dr. Fauci served as the key advisor to the White House and the Department of Health and Human Services on global AIDS issue, as well as the global preparedness for emerging infectious disease. He earned his medical degree from Cornell University Medical College. Dr. Fauci, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Good to be with you. You know, it's fair to say Americans know you as our expert on infectious diseases. You've made substantial contributions to the HIV AIDS research as well as other infectious diseases that have emerged uh, as threats to the public health. But the most recent is, of course, the outbreak of the Zika virus, which is a mosquito-borne pathogen that's been showing up in South and Central America. Uh, uh, The outbreak has sparked a coordinated effort between your organization, the CDC, and the World Health Organization, and others. Why is there so much concern about the Zika virus, and how does it differ from other mosquito-borne infections? Well, in general, the Zika virus, when it infects an individual, is a relatively mild infection characterized by a couple of days of fever, uh, arthralgias or muscle and joint aches, a rash and some conjunctivitis or red eye, as they call it. However, most recently, with the explosion of cases in Brazil, there has been the realization that it is very, very likely a strong association of infection of pregnant women with Zika and the occurrence of congenital abnormalities in the fetus and newborn, particularly a a type of congenital abnormality called microcephaly, which is a small head and brain due to either underdevelopment and or direct damaging effect of the virus on the brain of the baby. In addition, in individuals who are not pregnant, anyone, there is now the realization that there is an increase in the incidence of a syndrome called Guillain-Barre, which is an autoimmune disease that attacks the peripheral nerves 
and can, under extreme circumstances, lead to difficulty and paralysis and breathing and even death. But the most important thing that's driving the concern about Zika is the effect on congenital abnormalities in women who are infected during pregnancy. And that's the thing that's causing a great deal of concern in South America, particularly in Brazil. Well, Dr. Fauci, like so many public health threats that emerge, people are scrambling, I think, to learn and to understand and to know more. But a new piece of information that seems to have thrown another big source of worry into the equation is reports of human-to-human transmission in utero, partner-to-partner, et cetera. Can you uh, talk with us maybe a little bit about what are the hardest-hit regions at the moment, how rapidly it's spreading, and how it spreads, and what sort of threat does it pose to the United States? Well, no doubt that the hardest-hit regions of South America, particularly Brazil, particularly the northeastern section, of that country, but also other South American countries like Colombia and Venezuela, as well as the Caribbean. Now, it is spread by a mosquito bite. That is the overwhelmingly predominant way that this is spread. We have seen in this country imported cases, someone who might get infected by being bitten by a mosquito, let's say in Brazil, then travels to the United States, and get sick in the United States. That's in contrast to local spread within the United States, which has not come yet. Uh, I say yet because I would not be surprised if there are in the future local mini outbreaks of local transmission. And the reason we say that is that similar viruses like dengue and chikungunya, which are both spread by the same type of mosquito, the Aedes aegypti mosquito, have been in the Caribbean and South America for a long time. There have been imported cases. And then every once in a while, you get a little cluster of a mini outbreak in the United States, particularly in the southeastern Gulf Coast states like Florida and Texas. And we have seen small mini outbreaks of both dengue and chikungunya. Uh, in those states. They have been very well controlled by accelerating mosquito control. But we should not be surprised if we do see this little mini outbreak. Now, the thing that's happened recently is that there has been the description of a couple of well-documented cases of sexual transmission, namely someone who got infected, came back and infected their sexual partner who never left the country and so who could not have been exposed to infected mosquitoes. That, we don't know how often that occurs. We have to make sure we keep an open mind. It doesn't look like it is a very frequent event, but we do not know that. And for that reason, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, have recommended that when people leave the area, men who might get infected in South America and maybe come home to the United States or visit the United States, that they should practice safe sex if they're having sex with their sexual partner, particularly a pregnant woman. So if you have a wife that's pregnant or a girlfriend that's pregnant, and you're a man who comes back from one of those countries, the recommendation is to use the correct and and uh, and consistent use of condoms. There's no doubt about that. And on the other hand, the recommendation by the CDC is that if you are a pregnant woman in the United States, 
and you're thinking of traveling to the region, and there are over 30 countries that have now been designated in the Caribbean and South America that are countries in which there are local outbreaks, the recommendation is that you strongly consider not traveling to that region uh, until the situation gets clarified. Dr. Fauci, uh, it's it's sort of an interesting pathway to this crisis. Uh, Zika was picked up in the the 40s. Uh, what what happened in the development of this uh, disease that we missed? Is it or or do we have our eyes on Zika earlier? So what happened is that it was first recognized in a monkey in 1947. The first human infection was documented in Africa in 1952, and then Zika kind of stayed under the radar screen with variable amounts of infections in Africa and Southeast Asia. We don't know how many. So it was kind of off anyone's radar screen. And then in 2007, there was the first really major outbreak as opposed to individual intermittent little blips of cases. There was a major outbreak in the island of Yap in the Pacific Ocean. And then over a period of a few years from 2007 to 2012 and beyond, it worked its way across the Pacific Islands through French Polynesia, and then it hit Easter Island off the way off the coast of Chile. And then in 2015, it hit South America with a massive explosion of cases, very likely because the people in South America, particularly Brazil, had never before been exposed to this Zika virus. So they were a, a population that had no background immunity. Mm-hmm. That could possibly have been the reason. So far, there does not look like there's any major molecular or genetic change in the virus that caused it to explode this way in the Western Hemisphere. But we're still working on trying to find out if there is anything different about the virus. But in the first look, it doesn't look like there's anything major different from the virus that hit South America to the virus that was in Asia, and then across the Pacific. Well, Dr. Fauci, I'd like to uh, talk for a moment about what happens in your research community in times like these. And and let me preface that by saying that I've followed your work in HIV-AIDS research for decades now, and uh, the country really owes you a debt of gratitude for your leadership. But your organization, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, has a very robust infrastructure for mobilizing research protocols in, in quick response to outbreaks. You've also responded to malaria, to dengue fever, to Ebola. What has the research community learned from those experiences that now inform the research approach to Zika? How is this global network of scientists working together on this and what the best prospects are for controlling the outbreak as well as for a viable vaccine? Well, the experience that we've had with emerging infections that go all the way back, uh, you know, in recent memory to HIV-AIDS back in the early 1980s through the diseases that you mentioned, MERS, SARS, uh, potential of pandemic flu, Ebola, and now Zika, tell us that we need to be essentially perpetually prepared, uh, having a global health security network to be able to pick up with surveillance these infections when they occur so that they don't get out of hand and you wind up behind the eight ball, as it were, before you even get started. So it's a question of vigilance and surveillance, number one. Number two is to develop the technologies to rapidly move to develop what we call countermeasures in the form of sensitive 
and specific diagnostics, therapies where possible, and importantly for diseases like this, vaccine. And that's exactly what we're doing right now at NIH, at NIAID, is rapidly trying to develop a vaccine for Zika, since we don't have a vaccine because it never was a disease of any consequence before this most recent outbreak, and to do that as quickly as possible in the same way as we very quickly got the ball rolling and got a vaccine for Ebola when the Ebola outbreak was at its peak. So our main job right now is to get better diagnostics, and that would probably not to take too long, the diagnostics that are very specific for Zika and that can distinguish it from other infections in the region, but predominantly develop therapies as well as an important vaccine. Now, the other thing that one does in an outbreak like this, and this is more local public health authorities as well as the CDC, is to do good vector control. In other words, control the mosquito vector, which is Aedes aegypti, a very, very recalcitrant, difficult to control mosquito, bites all the time, day, night, multiple times, inside, outside. It's a very difficult mosquito. So a lot of effort has to be put into controlling the mosquito by larvicides, insecticides, getting rid of standing water where the mosquito breeds, and when people are in those regions, to cover themselves and protect themselves with insect repellent. So it's really rather a comprehensive effort to address this emerging outbreak. We're speaking today with Dr. Anthony Fauci, Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease at the National Institute of Health since 1984. He oversees research on a broad spectrum of infectious diseases. I'd like to know your thoughts on what we really need to be prepared in terms of dollars. And it seems to be anything close to our shores, there's a a large focus of attention. And uh, there was some concern earlier about the Ebola outbreak that we weren't there fast enough. But you've talked today about we need to be vigilant. We need to have surveillance. The basic science need to be in place so that we can be prepared. So specifically, what's the president asking for in research on this? And what's the larger need to really be a vigilant in surveilling public health? With regard to Zika, the president, in order to allow a coordinated response among multiple agencies of the U.S. federal government, has requested of Congress a $1.8 billion supplement to our 2016 budget in order for us to be able to do and continue to do what we're doing right now, because the monies that we have, either at the NIH or the CDC or the FDA, State Department, USAID, for the most part are committed to things that are also very important. So if you're going to take this extra bit of effort, which is considerable to address a serious threat like Zika, you're going to need more resources. And for that reason, President Obama has asked the Congress for this supplemental amount of money. But in the long run, you have to, and we have been trying over the last several years, to develop uh, a, a global health security network to be able to have connection among countries throughout the world with surveillance communication to be able to detect and respond as rapidly as possible to threats that are either suspected of occurring or that are completely surprised and unexpected the same way that Zika was. So you have to make the long-term investment both in basic and clinical biomedical research. For us, that means developing better technologies for vaccines and diagnostics so that you could be, respond very rapidly 
and not have a delay of a couple of years in responding to something that is exploding in front of you the same way that Zika is right now, uh, currently. So there's the long-range uh, uh, planning of a global health security approach as well as the basic and clinical biomedical research. And then there's the ability to move rapidly the way we're moving right now with Zika. And it's, that's the reason why the president asked for this extra money. Dr. Fauci, you know, when these, these things happen, they happen at the level of community and have the potential to just overwhelm even, even a pretty good public health or primary care or uh, acute care infrastructure. And we've been uh, hearing uh, reports. The uh, incidence of Guillain-Barre may be small, but it doesn't take much to overwhelm a small hospital, community hospital, ICU, the emergency room or the primary care clinics if there's a sudden major spike in people presenting for care. And I wonder uh, if you can comment on how the public health community can mobilize to also help support the intervention and the response at that level. Of- sure. That, that's, that's part of the long-range approaches that I mentioned just a few minutes ago. And we learned that lesson with Ebola back in 2014 and 2015. And that is one of the important components of an adequate response is what we call sustainable infrastructure at the local level. Uh, One of the reasons why there was that explosion of cases of Ebola in West Africa and Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea was that the medical infrastructure was barely existent. And when we had the need for identification, isolation, and contract tracing, it just was not there. You have to have an ongoing attention to and building up of what we call sustainable health systems so that when you get an outbreak like this, the community involved can at least begin to respond. And you mentioned the situation with Guillain-Barre in some of the smaller South American countries that don't have the kind of infrastructure that you need. It can become very, very challenging for them, particularly when you need things like respirators to take care of people who have paralysis of their breathing apparatus due to Guillain-Barre. So you make a very good point, and it is a challenge because we still do not have globally and, and distributed in an even manner the kind of health systems infrastructure that are required to respond at the local level to these kinds of outbreaks. Dr. Fauci, I can just imagine Americans this summer making a run on a mosquito repellent. Uh, because I don't know what we do as individuals. And I'm wondering, am I more worried about dengue or Zika, or am I more more worried about mosquitoes? How do I protect myself? And I'm sure there's people who are thinking about going to Olympics who might not do that. But for the average person, what do we worry about? In the United States, there are low, low levels of diseases like West Nile and some of the encephalitides that are spread by mosquitoes, but we don't have large, major, overwhelming outbreaks of mosquito-borne diseases such as malaria and dengue and other diseases like that because of our climate and because of the fact that we have reasonably good mosquito control. But as far as we're concerned in the United States, mosquitoes are more of a nuisance than anything else. What you have to be concerned about is that if you're going to a region in which there is not only a lot of mosquitoes, but there's a prevalence of disease, like what we saw starting in 2013, there was chikungunya in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. So people who were going to the Caribbean on vacation 
uh, you know, had to have some concern because chikungunya was really quite a prevalent in an outbreak in the Caribbean islands. The same now with South America. And that's the reason why the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are making a strong recommendation to pregnant women mm -hmm. that they seriously think of not traveling there right now until this gets taken care of. So depending upon where you live, mosquitoes can be a little bit of a nuisance or a real threat to your health. Mm -hmm. It really depends geographically distributed. We've been speaking today with Dr. Anthony Fauci, Director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases of the National Institutes of Health. You can learn more about their work by going to NIH.gov or follow their work on Twitter and all of their latest alerts at NIAID. Dr. Fauci, thank you so much for your work and for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Good to be with you. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Several members of Congress have written to government officials about the Zika virus outbreak in Brazil and a suspected rise there in the number of microcephaly cases. But we found some politicians overstated what's known about the outbreak. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand claimed that over 4,000 babies in Brazil have been born in the last year with microcephaly. That's suspected cases, not confirmed. As of January 29, Brazil's health ministry reported 4,180 suspected cases of microcephaly, but only 270 were confirmed. The remaining cases were either under investigation, 3,448, or discarded, that's 462 cases. Senator Richard Blumenthal said those 4,000 cases in Brazil, quote, have been linked to the outbreak of the Zika virus. But only six of the 270 confirmed babies with microcephaly had tested positive for Zika. Health officials say evidence strongly suggests a link between Zika and microcephaly, but they also emphasize the link hasn't been scientifically confirmed. Doctors in Brazil began noticing a possible increase in microcephaly cases around August 2015, as reported by the New York Times. The Zika virus likely spread to the country roughly a year earlier. Microcephaly is normally thought of as a rare neurological condition where an infant's head is substantially smaller than the heads of other children of the same age and sex. However, the condition often signifies a deeper problem, abnormal brain development. There is plenty of concern among groups such as the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, but the concern in part arises from a lack of knowledge about Zika and its potential causal link to microcephaly. For more on what's known about that possible relationship and the cases in Brazil so far, see our website at factcheck.org. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, 
Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Currently, about 2 million people around the world are suffering from end-stage renal disease or acute kidney failure. There are basically two options for these patients, kidney transplants, which are costly and severely lacking in available donor kidneys, or dialysis, also costly as well as time-consuming, requiring patients to undergo blood filtering treatments at medical facilities, lasting up to five hours per treatment, costing about $90,000 per year. A Montreal teen science project just may pave the way for another solution. Anya Pagarian developed a portable home dialysis kit that cost about $500 to produce, far less than the $30,000 dialysis machines currently in use. Her idea, inspired by her high school internship working at a dialysis center in Montreal. You wouldn't have to make your way to the hospital, which is a problem for a lot of patients. Um, It's not necessarily easy to go three times a week to the hospital especially if you have maybe limited mobility. Pogarian says hundreds of hours of research led her to build a prototype of the dialysis machine, which is about the size of a typical game board, but pumps and purifies blood just as large-scale dialysis machines do. Her invention has earned her numerous awards and scholarships and the attention of one of Canada's key hematology labs, She hopes this device can be developed throughout the world, especially third world countries, where a significant percentage of the population doesn't have access to either transplant surgery or dialysis. 10% of patients living in India and Pakistan who need the treatment cannot afford it or can't have it in any way. It's not accessible. So that's really what motivated me to continue. A relatively cheap, portable, easily assembled dialysis machine that could alleviate the cost and treatment hurdles of ongoing dialysis, keeping patients healthier longer, allowing them to be treated at home. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.